Hello, everyone. It's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We'll get into this very special end-of-year episode of the Spiked podcast in just one moment. But before we do that, I just want to say another huge thank you to everyone who has donated to our Christmas appeal so far. We really do appreciate it. If you haven't got around to it yet, there's still time. Just go to spiked-online.com slash donate. That's spiked-online.com slash donate. And there are still some of these beautiful Spiked mugs left. So if you want one of these, just donate £50 or more to our Christmas appeal over the next few weeks. Still open for a while yet, so just go to spiked-online.com slash mug to fill in your donation, give us your postage details, and we'll send you one of these in the new year. Thank you so much. Have a very Merry Christmas, and we'll see you all in 2024. Hello, and welcome to this extra special end-of-year edition of the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and I'm joined by Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. And presenter of Free Speech Nation on GB News, Andrew Doyle. Hello. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing Israel, anti-Semitism and the debasement of the left. The year we all said no to trans ideology. The new blasphemy laws in the UK. And the democratic revolt against climate extremism. So one of the most significant moments this year was the Hamas attacks on Israel on the 7th of October, killing... 1,200 people. Now, this has had not only huge effects in Israel, in the Middle East, but it's also had pretty profound consequences for us in the West, in Western society. And Tom, I think it's fair to say that this is a moment that's kind of exposed the pretensions of the left more than anything else. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it was essentially a moment in which it was civilization versus barbarism, and the left decided to back barbarism effectively, or at least to make excuses for it. I mean, it's really difficult to overstate just how morally depraved that response was from the open celebrations through to the constant um, grabbing for context to try and explain what was going on here. And I know we've talked about it so much on Spikes and on the show before. We know the reasons for this insofar as the sort of identity politics that the left are now marinated in. Mm -hmm. They struggle to see Israelis and even Jews as anything other than oppressors. And underneath that is also this kind of hyper-infantilization of Palestinians um, to the point where even Hamas are committing a pogrom or almost like children acting out. So we know why they've got themselves into this kind of moral pickle, to put it lightly. But at the same time, that doesn't make it any less shocking. And I think that's one thing that the left is really, um, what remains of it, certainly the woke left, any claim it had to the moral high ground has been utterly obliterated now. And I think, if anything, the desperation, the kind of doubling down that we've seen in recent days, the atrocity denialism that has been going on for weeks now, I think is in a sense a realisation that that's what's taken place. Um, They uh, have to keep digging because otherwise they have to recognise what it is that they've been making excuses for since October the 7th. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, any claim that the woke have now to represent anti-racism or, you know, to be against bigotry has surely just been shattered. Well, it was always a folly anyway. They Mm. were never against bigotry. They were the sort of embodiment of bigotry, which, lest we forget, when accurately defined... Uh, means someone who is completely intolerant of other people's worldview, and that is precisely these people in a nutshell. But they've also been p- uh, pushing for ideas and policies that have effectively uh, created a kind of hyper-racialized society, increased racial division. Uh, there was an article the other day about how uh, uh, there's there's racism getting worse in America, there's more intolerance, uh, there's more antagonism. And this is largely to do with the woke left, I think, if we want to call them that. Uh, but particularly when it comes to Israel Hamas, I mean, they they have, as Tom says, completely exposed their own moral failings in a way that I I have found shocking, actually, insofar mm. as 
I never really understood why Holocaust denial was a thing, even. I mean, the, the evidence is far too overwhelming. Yeah. There's, you know, in order to uh, take that view, you would have to be willfully blind to the truth. And yet we've seen it happening in real time now. We see it all the time where wherever something happens, even October the 7th has been denied uh, by various activists or they've tried to minimize what has happened. Or you've had people saying, well, uh, there's no uh, video footage of rape. Therefore, we can't assume that rape happened. Complete contradictory stance from the very same people who were pushing the Me Too agenda not so long ago saying we must believe all women. And I think the, the, the really shocking thing for me has been it's now absolutely clear that there is a certain kind of activist uh, for whom the truth is simply not important. All that is important is maintaining the narrative within their minds, confirmation bias, you might call it, or belief perseverance, which is the idea that uh, you maintain your belief even after the evidence has come along to completely obliterate it. I find that uh, particularly disturbing. And, and Ella, I mean, London in particular, I mean, lots of, but also lots of cities around the world have really played host to a kind of orgies of anti-Semitism. And yet, you know, when the former Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, referred to these as hate marches. She was the one getting stick for it. She was the one accused of inflaming tensions. I mean, what have you made of, of that? You know, it's almost like you can't even criticise the racism that's on display. Well, obviously, you know, the it's been remarkable to me that a party like the Socialist Workers' Party, which itself has been mired in multiple rape scandals, um, has been able to take centre stage in some of the pro-Palestine um, marches you know, the irony of that when you take into account what happened um, in terms of what Hamas did to literally weaponize rape against Israeli and Jewish women is, I think, obviously lost from quite a lot of people on that march. But there's a sort of shallowness to it, which is that there's an inability, it feels like there's an inability of people to sort of dig behind what's actually happening mm. and think about the complexities of it. I mean, it's interesting, Andrew, you said, you know, the the perseverance of belief or the sort of, I mean... That there isn't there is an important thing called principle, which I think you know lots of people feel that they they want to hold on to and still have, and principle is important, um, which is having you know a lot of people have a certain view of the history of what happened in Israel and Palestine, but the sort of shallowness of the contemporary left means that there is an inability to update and assess what's happened in the last two months or less, um, and think about it differently. So there is this sort of unwillingness to contend with the fact that if you are pro-Palestinian self-liberation, you you have to be anti-Hamas. Mm. It's a no-brainer. I mean, probably the, you know, Palestinians' worst enemy is Hamas because of the, you know, people forget that they wiped out all the opposition, that they're literally using uh, civilians as human shields. You know, the list goes on. This is not an organisation that has any interest in anything progressive happening in the region. Um, and, and yet there is this sort of shallow... Uh, reiteration of sort of oh it's genocide oh it's awful in in this sort of way that is um that it turns it into this very sort of superficial goodies and baddies row and it's much more complicated than that but I think the sort of I think you have to be pretty open and clear about this and Daniel Benamy's written a lot about this on Spiked which is that the inability to uh, maintain the same level of scrutiny and the same level of criticism for racism and, and bigotry when it's against Jewish people yeah. um, is astounding. You know, even the fact that now, no one bats an eyelid when some, you know, uh, posh spad in Westminster said someone touched my knee and everyone's like, of course it happened, of course. This is horrendous. Fire everyone. Um, but when you've got uh, pictures of 
um, you know, dead Jewish women with their knickers around their ankles, people sort of chin scratching and saying, well, were they really raped? And I think that sort of lack of moral clarity is something that has really debased the left or debased the sort of liberal left or whatever you want to call them. And, and Andrew, because this kind of woke thinking isn't just confined to the SWP or anything like that, it's part of our institutions. We've sort of seen how it's debased the police as well and things like that. You see they take a completely different view of, you know, people making racist remarks on a pro-Palestine march as they would um, on any other occasion. Or, yeah. you know, we've even seen police officers warning um, people, Jewish campaigners who are putting up posters of hostages or trying to show posters of hostages that they are causing trouble, that they are being too provocative yeah, and I should the, stop. The double standards have been absolutely incredible. You hear this phrase a lot now, two-tiered policing. That's it. mm. It's become like a kind of catchphrase. But it is true insofar as when Hisbet Tahrir are calling for jihad on the streets of London, the police do nothing. When fireworks are thrown by pro-Palestine protesters at the police, again, they do nothing. Uh, well, I saw a viral clip the other day of a, a protester up on one of the historical monuments, a statue, and the police are just saying, oh, get down, get down, but not really doing anything, just sort mm. of saying it. And yet they will police and send out tweets saying that we're going to uh, investigate you and arrest you if you misgender someone. Uh, m we hear all the time ideas that words of violence, that microaggressions can be harmful from the same people who seem to think it's absolutely fine to talk about genocide. We saw that from the uh, presidents of Harvard and Penn and MIT when they were caught in Congress, uh, asked the question outright, you know, whether calling for the genocide of Jews violates your uh, hateful conduct policy. How could it not, by the way? But um, they, would, they, they didn't defend themselves by saying, well, free speech is really important to us and even horrible speech must be defended on campus. Uh, they said this is context dependent, but it's not context dependent when they, uh, when they kick students out or fire professors for committing microaggressions, when they say that a teenage boy who once used the N-word in an email when he was 13 can no longer come to Harvard. Mm. You know, they don't apply those principles. So I think that's what's really aggravated people is the sheer double standards of it. And the idea that these are the kind of people that can stand there and moralize. I mean, whenever I've tweeted anything about uh, Israel, the Israel-Gaza conflict at the moment, I'm getting hectored and lectured by activists saying, well, clearly you don't care about the death of civilians, which is absolutely astonishing to say. Every civilian death is an absolute tragedy. Uh, but they've got themselves into this awful, um, uh, uh, precarious position where they, they see that there's a moral equivalent here. And they get it, they bring it down to numbers. They talk about yeah. the numbers of people dead in Israel, the number of people dead in, in Gaza. There is a fundamental moral distinction between a terrorist group that actively targets civilians, rapes, tortures, beheads, mutilates, terrorizes individuals, and then gloats about it and boasts about it and films it and delights and takes joy in this sort of sadistic uh, enterprise. There is a distinction between that and civilians who are killed in war by a force that are actively attempting to minimize civilian casualties. The fact that they, people can't see that and they reduce this just to a numbers game, I find that frightening. Yeah, definitely. Tom? No, I think just coming back to the point about Islamism as well, is the fact that this has been a much more long-running alliance, horrendous marriage of convenience that has been taking place between certainly the supposedly anti-imperialist left, the SWP, um, people around the Stop the War Coalition. For uh, quite a long time now, they have been making excuses for groups like Hamas, openly describing them as legitimate resistance movements. And I think that's one part of the puzzle here. Mm. It's not only the fact that there has obviously been this intense Israelophobia to anti-Semitism on the left, but it's intertwined with a phony anti-imperialism, which is now basically just anti-Westernism. So any kind of force, no matter how depraved, no matter how barbaric, if it's seen as kind of inflicting damage on the kind of Western hegemon and, you know, 
on the part of the kind of revolting global mm. underdog, then it's kind of fine. And they've just the fact that they've been unable to shake themselves out of that mindset, I think, is just proof of the fact that it's really set in after a, a, over a very long period of time. You know, this uh, this grim marriage of convenience has finally grown up. But I, even I did think to myself, surely after that pogrom. They would have to reassess. Yeah. For the longest time, like the, I always thought, like the Iron Dome over Israel that was intercepting so many of the rockets that Hamas and other groups were firing into Israel from Gaza, or was almost like a kind of force field for the Western leftist, like luxury beliefs. That means they never had to confront the kind of full scale of what it is that they were supporting. But on October the seventh, they saw in full gruesome detail what this group that they had been making excuses for, if not actually supporting for so many years was actually capable of they really were about what they wrote in that charter about murdering jews and so on and yet still they couldn't find the even the tiniest bit of flexibility to even do a both sides thing mm. and i think that was telling of them as individuals but also as a supposedly anti-imperialist left more broadly i suppose definitely and one thing i want to touch on before we move on is um the question of multiculturalism uh it it's turned out that um People who have been advising the police have been caught chanting from the river to the sea at various protests. Lots, as lots of viewers will know, that's basically a coded call for genocide, for the destruction of Israel. There was someone in the College of Policing, I, I believe it was, who said that it should be a hate crime to support Israel. Um, Ella, what do you make of that? I mean, the way that the sort of state has played a role in legitimizing like quite extreme Islamist beliefs, but, you know, using these so-called community leaders uh, as representatives of Muslims and treating them as, you know, putting them on a pedestal. I think it's because there has been, there's been this sort of awful mix of a nervous, you know, really intense nervousness about being called Islamophobic. Um, and that sort of meaning that people have turned and people in quite serious positions of power have turned a blind eye to, you know, some quite hairy behaviour. Um, you know, thinking about things like, uh, you know, examples that we've had from Batley Grammar, but mm. also, um, you know, the protests that happened outside those cinemas where there was some, like, you know, really unpleasant, well-known Islamist-adjacent activists um, chanting some really bad stuff. And, you know, you've got this nervous guy coming out and saying, oh, don't say anything or I might be called Islamophobic. So there's that kind of fear mixed with this, you know, belief in this political ideology, multiculturalism, that sort of suggests that what you have to do to create a cohesive society is just let everybody be in their protected pockets of different cultures and um and and never mix and it's mm. it's a sort of it's actually a sort of anti multi policy because it it means that nobody ever really gets to know each other rubs up against each other and has authentic interactions which can cause discord it can also cause you know integration and a normal society which is what people should um, should be aiming for and that kind of nervousness plus that sort of practiced um, and sort of pol turned into policy sort of distancing and antisocial behavior has meant that we've got a problem with Islamism in this country and uh, you know and uh, and not a small one by the mm. way um, and that the fact that the sort of Israel-Gaza conflict comes at a time when all of that is happening and sort of brewing in the background and we've got homegrown jihadis and all the rest of it means that I feel quite nervous about a young generation of people who don't know very much about the history of the conflict, don't know very much about, um, you know, like most young people, don't know very much about the sort of intricacies of the debate and also have a worrying relationship to the history of the Holocaust yeah. and sort of see it as this just period in history that isn't very important and that doesn't really have any bearing on their understanding of the world. 
that makes for a bit of a dangerous situation. And, you know, I think it's I think it's important to note that there are a lot of Jews in and particularly in London, who are feeling very nervous. You know, a lot of Jewish schools telling kids not to wear their badges. A lot of Jewish parents telling their kids to tuck their Star of David into their top. I mean, that is, that's a serious state of affairs if that's happening to people who are supposedly living in a free society. So we're coming up to the end of the year, and that means a lot of you are probably starting to think about your New Year's resolutions. Maybe in 2024, you want to finally start working on your passion project and get your small business off the ground. Now, that might seem daunting, but don't worry, there's a solution. And it sounds like this. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform that'll get you starting, running, and growing your own business in no time. Shopify is a revolutionary commerce platform that's helping millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling personalized tennis rackets or dog-sized denim jackets, Shopify can simplify selling online and in person so you can focus on growing your business. Shopify takes the hard parts out of setting up a small business. No matter what your goals are, Shopify has an endless list of integrations and third-party apps to help you achieve them. From on-demand printing to accounting to customer service chatbots, Shopify has everything you need to revolutionize your business. Even marketing is made simple with Shopify. Built-in tools will help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns so you can focus on selling your amazing products and let Shopify do the rest. And thanks to Shopify's extensive business course library and 24-7 support, Shopify will help you every step of the way. If your goals are big, small, or somewhere in between, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. So why not get serious about your passion project in the new year? Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash spiked. Go to shopify.co.uk slash spiked to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash spiked. 2023 felt a little bit like the year that the trans movement was exposed to the disinfectant of sunlight, I think it's fair to say. There were some big moments, particularly in January, we had the case of Isla Bryson or Adam Graham, the double rapist who was locked up in a woman's prison initially. And the backlash was so intense that it even seemed to have brought down at least partially Nicola Sturgeon's yeah. government because she'd set her reputation on this self-ID policy. Uh, Tom, do you want to take us a little bit through that case in particular, mm. and then we'll broaden it out a bit? I know it's so easy to forget about it now, because yeah. so long ago, but what an incredible moment, as you say, not just for the trans debate, but also for semi-single-handedly bringing down Nicola Sturgeon, who was seen as politically unassailable for so long and such a canny operator. But like so many people in politics who were seen as having good judgment, are good at playing the game, if nothing else, it was incredible how her attachment to this ideology almost was unending, you know, mm. even when the reality of what had taken place, when the consequences of her own gender self-ID policies, because they'd already been rolled out in Scottish prisons effectively, were presented to her, that she couldn't really pull back from it, like only in a minor way. And then, of course, she had a spectacular downfall. I think I feel like the, the Adam Gray and the Isla Bryson case is one of those things where people were really confronted with the consequences of if you accept this ideology. I mean, if you accept as that trans women are women. This mm. is where you end up. This is a point that Helen Joyce has made quite powerfully, I think. It's, that it's not just that that statement is factually incorrect. It's also that if it is supposed to be correct, if we're all supposed to carry on as if it is correct, then what flows from that? Yeah. And the most extreme, depraved example one could think of, certainly in this 
situation is a convicted sex offender, a double rapist, being housed in a women's prison. And seeing the SNP tie themselves in knots over it was fascinating when it would be so easy for them to just embrace an entirely commonsensical position, <laughs> and yet they still couldn't. But I think it was one of those, It's along with a few other stories that we might well get onto, I think it was one of those ones that really brought into absolute clarity why this isn't just about being nice yeah. to a certain group of people. Why, if you accept the ideology wholesale, if you accept something like self-ID, the most the most nastiest thing imaginable could happen as a consequence of that. And I suppose it's the, the most striking example we've got so far of that. Definitely. And Andrew, do you think there's a, more of a willingness to say when confronted with the image of a trans woman that this is a man, quite straightforwardly? I'm thinking of, you know, Isla Bryce and Adam Graham, but very recently we had the hashtag bloke in a wig Melissa Poulton, the Green Party candidate, who people have just outright said no. Even an MP said, no, this is a man. Uh, earlier this year, people might remember the case of the breastfeeding bloke that was interviewed on ITV. Oh, yeah. That generated an enormous controversy where people were saying, why is this man breastfeeding their child? It's, yeah. Do you think we've just got a bit braver and more straightforward, you know, more straightforward in our language? I'm not even so sure it's a matter of bravery. I think it's probably more likely to be a matter of realisation insofar as I think a lot of people, broadly speaking, are liberal and support what we used to call transsexuals. So mm. we talk about people who, for whatever reason, feel that they must present or have surgery to, to present as the opposite sex. And if they don't do that, their lives are utterly horrible. And m virtually all people have sympathy with those people who are in that kind of situation because it's a very expensive, painful, long process to go through. You don't do that lightly. Mm. And I think what's happened now is what they haven't, what most people haven't realised is that thanks to groups such as Stonewall and and, and uh, various activist gender groups, that what has happened is there's been a huge conflation of what it means to be trans. Stonewall had a thing called the trans umbrella. Mm. And underneath that is what we call old-fashioned transsexuals, but they've now incorporated cross-dressers, fetishists, uh, just anyone, you non-binary even, someone who just doesn't really like conforming to old-fashioned male or female stereotypes, which I think is most of us anyway. Um, so what people have thought they were supporting is not what they now see. And it's those yeah. those things that you dis describe, you know, a double rapist in a bad wig with a with clearly male genitalia, which are on show because he's wearing tight leggings. And you see that and you see Melissa Poulton, a man in a bad wig that he clearly got from Claire's accessories or something. It's not even a good wig. <laughs> like a Halloween like making, joke shop or something. Something, like, yeah. not making any effort whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that that's the point. Yeah. Um, but... But when you see things like that, when you see Leah Thomas, a biologically intact mm. male with male genitalia, male musculature, standing on a podium, towering over two women, those images suddenly shake people and they suddenly think, well, w what I thought I was supporting isn't that. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's why we're winning this battle, certainly on Turf Island on in the UK. Uh and whether that feeds out globally will be very interesting because it's pretty embedded in the US and Australia. Uh, and New Zealand, but uh, and and Canada is basically lost at this point. But will it spread out? It would be interesting to see if the UK becomes a vanguard against this nonsense. Um, and you know, frankly, the more Melissa Poulton's, the better. Yeah, because it ends up. What, how do they describe it? Peaking people. Mm. It, it, mm. No one can look. And also, people didn't know that this stuff was happening. They didn't know that males were being housed in female prisons. Yeah, I think people thought that that was made up. 
because it sounds so ridiculous. And I think that's why Nicola Sturgeon's position became unsustainable because so all of a sudden people are confronted with this horrible truth that no one would have believed. No one would have believed that people were being sexually assaulted on hospital wards and that the staff were by policy told to deny that that could be the case because there were biological males on the ward. These things are so unbelievable. Yeah. And the more that this comes out, the more people will be, hopefully they'll be able to retain that sympathy for transsexualism. Maybe we have to bring the word back. Mm, Maybe yeah. that might be a good, well, rather than this nebulous idea of transgenderism, which as far as I can see can mean absolutely anything that the person involved wants it to mean. Yeah. And Ella, uh, Andrew mentioned um, New Zealand and Australia and sort of global picture. Um, this was also the year that we saw Posey Parker, aka Kelly J. Keane, basically be attacked at a Let Women Speak rally. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's the other side that people have kind of um, got to know about the the sort of misogynistic rage that often attends trans activism? Well, it's funny because it's been happening for quite a long time. I mean, mm. we've been covering on Spike for years. Feminists who previously no one would ever touch, like Julie Bindle, for example, who sort of, you know, would all the liberal set was, would think of as very right on and would like mm. to be on the same side of. Suddenly being deplatformed from university, um, having protesters throw punches at them mm. um, at you know outside speaking events and things like that. So that, that's kind of been bubbling away, but I think it's just escalated to such a point now where pretty much any feminist of a certain age and above is like spat at anytime yeah. she tries to speak anywhere publicly, particularly lesbians. There's such an intense hatred for lesbian feminists. Um, but I think that Andrew says it's sort of people have had a kind of hang on a minute now. I thought we were meant to be for letting women speak, as um, Posey Parker, Kelly Jane Keane's organisation is called. And, that, you know, I think it's been really, you know, hats off to the women who have just doggedly gone to these public places like in the centre of Brighton or, you know, in sort of town centres and and said, this has to happen, this has to be made public. I think that's been very brave and, and has played a big part in galvanising people around the issue of, you know, saying we literally have to be allowed to speak. Women have to be allowed to speak about their daughters because we know that a lot of the sort of trend in trans for young people is young girls um, and what this is doing to our lives, our spaces, blah, 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 all the rest of it. But I think the interesting thing is that there's, you know, in terms of how much this is actually changing, mm. I think there is still a way to go because I get sort of, maybe I just hold grudges, but I get annoyed when Tories now pile in on, so there was a couple of Tories who piled in on Melissa Poulton and said, oh, you're, you know, you're just a man on a wig and, oh, you know, of course this is ridiculous. Um, and you sort of want to say, yeah, I'm glad you've come to the party late, but you were the ones that brought this in. Yeah. And okay, I'm glad that Keir Starmer now probably... I suppose knows or at least admits he knows what a cervix is or where it is or whatever that was. But you're but you know it, it, I don't think we've won that battle with the people where it matters which is you know where politics unfortunately is decided at the moment in parliament because there still is this sense of well maybe we won't let rapists into women's prisons but of course we should still have guidelines in schools yeah. or of course we should still you know um make it a hate crime to misgender people. <clears throat> And I think actually this isn't just about the extreme cases. It's about recognising that the discussion about gender is something that determines whether you understand how daily life works. And it's kind of just an issue of telling the truth. And, you know, the thing about Melissa Poulton is that I think 
I don't care if he's a man in a wig. I don't care if he calls himself a whatever name. Proud I, lesbian. I, yeah. <laughs> I cared about the fact that he said, I want to talk about, I want to bring a women's experience to the table. And you think, yeah. oh, for God's yeah. sake, there's as far as I can go and then I can go no further. So I think it's, I think we have to get people to understand that this is an issue that isn't just about sort of the extreme cases. It's about a real rot at the heart of politics at the moment where people refuse to tell the truth and are taking, taking um, people for a ride, basically. Yeah. When, when a politician tells you that they don't, that it's complicated of knowing who's a woman and who's not a woman. They're bullshitting you. Yeah, Andrew, I just wanted to ask you about that, where you think it, we are politically with this, in, uh, because, you know, you had Rishi Sunak um, seems very proud of himself for mm -hmm. making cracking jokes about women not having penises, um, uh, as if it's some great revelation that women don't have penises. That he does know, yeah. Ke that, that, at least he knows that. Keir Starmer thinks that 99.99% of women don't have penises which implies the existence of one in a thousand women potentially who do have penises. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. where do you think we so are? I don't know where, well, it's a slow process, isn't it? And as I say, I think this gradual realisation will... I think most people have come round to the view that we have to do something about this. But politically, it's quite difficult. Maybe it's difficult because the civil service is so captured. You know, yeah. we've heard from Kemi Badenoch about how the trouble she's had with certain civil servants trying to modify her speech or whatever. And... Um, you know, we've had the whistleblower recently talking about the migration issue in terms of the civil service, that whatever the Home Office says, the staff members at the civil service will try, try and thwart. Mm. You know, uh, if that is true, then we are... Well, we've known for a long time that, that the civil service is not impartial, even though it needs to be. And on this issue, uh, it definitely isn't. So even though the politicians are kind of waking up, I think the woke virus is so embedded in left and right. Ella is absolutely right to point out that so much of this has come under mm. the Tories' watch and the yeah. gender recognition reforms were coming through Theresa May, for example. You know, all of this is happening. And I think it, and I think that means it's the kind of thing you can't vote out. So it's just a kind of gradual healing, I, I, I think. <laughs> I think it's going to take quite a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think... Uh, the more that we can alert people to the threat that this poses to other minority groups that might help in terms of the gay rights issue. This, yeah. and, You know, we've talked about the misogyny element. The gay rights issue is a huge issue because so many of the woke left pride themselves on being uh, defenders of mm. gay rights. But here they are advocating policies that represent the biggest threat to gay rights in my lifetime. You know, when I was at school, you could get beaten up for being gay. No one would be out, but they wouldn't have the teachers suggesting that they transition, take medication and fix themselves surgically. Mm. So that's a huge, it's dangerous to be a gay kid now or a lesbian kid now. Um, you know, when Melissa Poulton calls himself a lesbian, I think that is a big problem. It's quite funny, but it's also a big problem because mm -hmm. lesbian spaces are being absolutely eroded. We saw Jenny Watson's lesbian speed dating event get shut down temporarily because a man wanted to attend and was being bullish about it. Uh, in Australia, lesbians aren't allowed to gather anymore mm -hmm. because they have to include uh, people with penises who identify as lesbian. Uh, lesbian dating sites are full of men with beards who don't even, again, make the slightest effort to appear like a woman. Um, gay friends of mine talk about Grindr all the time. That is full of women, women, so they don't go on it anymore. So the, the idea that gay people can't use those words, lesbian and gay, to define themselves, that they can't organise and, uh, and collectivise according to their sexual orientation, that their sexual orientation and its validity is being denied by the very people who claim to defend it, people like Stonewall. Yeah. Um, you know, Stonewall is now an anti-gay uh, body. It's an anti-gay institution uh, inadvertently, right? And that's a really weird situation mm. to be in. So I think highlighting the threat it poses to gay kids, the, the victory on the Tavistock is major, I think, and people are coming around to that. Mm. 
Um, it's kind of looks like it's going to live on in sort of zombie well, form, unfortunately. Yeah. But that's Which what they goes do. To your point, you know? they keep they keep it going. It's like with non-crime hate incidents, right? Wasn't Rachel McLean uh, the politician? Wasn't yeah. she? Uh, didn't she have a non-crime hate incident yeah. recorded against her? But the the Home Office had said they need to stop recording that two years ago. Every Home Secretary pretty much has said we're going to stop recording non-hate crime right. incidents. They were struck down in the courts. They said you can't do. <laughs> it said it's, unlaw hate it's unlawful. It's unlawful. No they so weren't that... even brought in through an act of Parliament. They were just they just came up through the College of Policing. This unelected quango. Right. Yeah, it carries on. So that's my point about the trans debate. Is that mm. however uh, more realization grows amongst most people and politicians, there are still these activists. It deeply embedded in our major public and cultural and governmental institutions who are not going to stand for it, who aren't going to go down without a fight. So that's where we've got to, we've got to kind of unravel the long march through the institutions, I think, mm -hmm. in order to make any process. I don't know, progress. I don't know how you do that, by the way. I, I agree with, I'm sorry, Fraser, I know you want to move on, but I, yeah. I do agree with that. That being said, you just wish that the Tory party just had the minerals to say, look, we're on our way out. This is one thing that we can do. We can introduce yeah. guidance. We can pass laws. And we can dare Keir Starmer to change it. Because he, he is under pressure now, Starmer, in a way that he wasn't previously, to um, be a bit more sceptical about the trans activists in his party. I don't think he would want to touch these issues with a barge pole if they were essentially questions of settled law and settled guidance. But I think with the Tory party concerned... It's just the kind of dinner party set within them, mm. the kind of Caroline Noakes of this world, or even, you know, just the, the that Tory Penny who, who desperately, exactly, the Penny Mourns, that, that Tory who desperately wants to be liked by the people who will never vote for them will always get in the way of this stuff. You just wish that they, um, the leadership had the, uh, the courage to properly push this through because I think they could be doing a genuine service on their way out because <laughs> yeah. of the fact that Keir Starmer, if nothing else, would be much more cowardly to go anywhere near these issues again, I think. Definitely. So the UK has had another pretty torrid year for free speech. The police are still uh, happily arresting people for saying things that are supposedly offensive. Uh, there's two cases I kind of want to focus on at first um, before we broaden it out. Um, the lesbian Nana debacle and the Wakefield Koran scuffing incident. Now, Ella, do you want to remind people a little bit about what happened with this lesbian Nana case? <laughs> Well, there was, you know, there was an incident in which a 16-year-old um, essentially called a police officer, said to a police officer, you look like my lesbian nana in the course of some kind of altercation. Um, and, the, you know, it later transpired that this 16-year-old was autistic and, you know, really was drawing some kind of comparison mm -hmm. to her grandmother, who mm -hmm. is a lesbian. Um, but it was taken offensively by this police officer who was sort of filmed looking like she was in tears and doing this kind of big performance. And the young girl had you know, proceedings taken against her. And there uh, there was this sort of uh, online, it was because it was recorded, everyone's wearing body cams and all the rest of it. Um, it went online. And there was this sort of backlash of saying, hang on a minute, you are, as an adult, trying mm -hmm. to take action against a girl um, who has, you know, called you what you consider to be something mean. Um, but the reason why the lesbian nana thing started trending is because the same police officer was then um, <laughs> caught on camera a, a little while after pepper spraying someone. And, you know, so it's obviously an unpleasant individual. Um, but there is... I think that did look more like a riot, to be fair. But well, nevertheless, it was amusing that yeah, lesbian nana the les rode again. lesbian yeah. nana, <laughs> you know... It's an online hate figure, well, yeah. Well, but the lesbian nana is, you know, uh, cries at a 16-year-old yeah. sort of criticising her, but um, <laughs> is quite happy blinding people in a riot. But there's, the, you know, the, uh, that and taking alongside the incident that happened in Wakefield mm. with the young man who, you know, allegedly 
kicked and desecrated a Quran, but actually it turned out, again, a, a young man with, um, you know, issues himself um, and, you know, ridiculous sort of overblowing and globalising of an incident that should have just been a kind of common sense matter. It reminds you of how authoritarian the police can be. And it reminds you that it doesn't matter how many times they march at Pride, it doesn't matter how many times they sort of wear nice things and, you know, go on Twitter and sound all cuddly and friendly. The police are can crackheads that are incredibly authoritarian when they want to be. And when it comes to issues of free speech, they are completely over the top. You know, we've had incidents of them, many, many incidents now of people being arrested for stuff they've said on Twitter. You kind of, you know, say the wrong thing, look the wrong way at a police officer. They they feel like they have to come down on you. And I think it's because there is this real crisis of authority within the police, which is that on the one hand, they are, um, they're sort of stripped of all authority because they're encouraged to dance at Pride and do all this sort of stuff and and their brief has been massively overblown. But on the other hand, they feel the need to kind of prove themselves when they can. Um, so that's why you see, I think, what one of the only times I've ever agreed with Suella Braverman was her pointing out that there is this sort of double standards in policing, that when they feel like they can... Um, you know, lock up a load of people on a lockdown protest, for example, yeah, then yeah. they will and they'll go massively over the top. But when they feel like they might be scrutinised on social media for, you know, ha- mis- mishandling a just a poor protester a bit too harshly, yeah. then they won't. And that's a very dangerous situation because essentially you don't have any sort of real... Sp- rules that the police are playing by anymore. Mm. The two things are definitely connected. Like the dancing at Pride and the cracking down on people who express, you know, but a spicy anti-woke meme on the internet. Mm. But it's like censorship as a form of PR. Mm. It's like state censorship is a way to say, we are on your side. We're not that horrible police force that was found to be institutionally racist or what have you. Um, but the, the problem is you hand these powers to them. They will also be used in a petty, vindictive, personal way. Like yeah. that person said something that's upset me and I have well within my power, especially in that case of that girl from Leeds because she was, they had arrested her on the basis it was a public order offence, a homophobic public order offence, which she had uttered in her own home. Yeah. It and didn't they, make they it, they were, they were making up as they went along. breaking into the house to mm. arrest her. Uh, some people raised the possibility that this itself was unlawful. But there have been a lot of cases of the police being caught breaking the law, uh, applying the law incorrectly. Mm. They just don't know that. I mean, we've seen some of their tweets quite explicitly yeah. uh, saying things that are not correct about the law. You know, they, they seem to think. And, and again, it comes back to the point earlier that we made about the uh, the quangos. You know, the, the College of Policing has effectively cultivated a generation of activist police officers. It's been, t- t- I mean, it invented non-crime hate incidents <laughs> yeah. out of nowhere. No one told them to do this. Uh, they've, been, they've effectively trained police to believe that it's their job to uh, audit our thoughts, our, mo- our emotions, our words, mm-hmm. to arrest us if we if we step out of line. Uh, and that is connected to the rain, rainbow lanyards and the dancing mm-hmm. of pride and all the rest of it. It's why the police are now being described as the armed wing of Stonewall, you know. Um, th- th- it's it's because this ideology is deeply rooted within it. And I think, to go back to what you said about the Tories, why don't they just abolish the College of Policing before they go? Just scrap it. It's not fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. They don't appear to know the law mm-hmm. and they're they're teaching the police to apply the law inaccurately. So get rid of them. And it's it's really important to stress that, you know, often... People will say flippantly, you can even be arrested for misgendering now. But that's not a joke. You can be arrested yeah, for these yeah, things, yeah. even if it isn't against the law, as yeah, you, as you point anyway, out. Yeah. They'll, they'll still do it. Um, yeah. Tom, could you talk a little bit about the, the Wakefield Quran incident? Mm. Because 
I mean, I think that's still an example of woke policing, but it's a slightly, perhaps even more sinister bent where we see the police effectively enforcing Islamic blasphemy law. Yeah, that was absolutely crazy. I mean, from the extent that we can piece the story together, it was that this autistic uh, schoolboy, as you were saying, on a dare or because this is something that his friends were doing, bringing various holy books into school or something of this nature, brought, brings a Quran into school. Um, they were reading from it and then... They go back into the school building, it gets knocked to the ground. And as it was described in the press, lightly scuffed. Mm. As a consequence of this, a local councillor of Muslim background, um, as well as one of the local imams, effectively go to the school to um, discuss this with the school themselves. The school obviously acted very quickly to suspend the boy in question. Um, and the upshot of it was that this boy and his mother and his family were subjected to death and arson threats. Um, and in order to try and make it stop, his mother goes to the to the local mosque, to the local masjid, to effectively beg for leniency. I mean, it was really quite disgusting. I mean, the the meeting was um, was captured on video, was live streamed, and people have since watched it in full. And there's just this undercurrent of menace to the whole thing, which is to say that essentially, for lightly scuffing a holy book, mm. um, that not to, they are they're at pains in this meeting to say that obviously violence isn't justified and so on. But this shouldn't be an issue. This shouldn't have even led to any kind of expulsion. This should have, at most should have been a clip around the ear, get back to class kind of situation. Um, and one of the striking things about it is in that meeting that took place, you have both the head teacher of the school, who's there just falling over himself to apologise for everything that's happened. And the local chief superintendent who was there. Mm. And as you say, he was given the, the schoolboy in question. All of this death threats, arson threats, the person who ends up with a kind of quasi-criminal record is the child. And that, I think, sums up how much we've lost the plot with this mm. and how much we haven't learned the lessons of Batley Grammar and the other scandals around blasphemy that we've had in recent years. But, but I, think yeah, it, Ella. I think it just proves that there's, you know, there is something incredibly pernicious going on, which is that we, we live in a sort of culture of cowardice which is that everybody, nobody thinks that anything can be resolved in a normal way amongst each other anymore. Authorities are brought in at the drop of the hat over everything. You know, the fact that even, uh, you know, a, a school would entertain the idea of external bodies becoming involved in a minor disciplinary action within a school grounds is insane. You know, it's it's well, it's not just insane. It's just an incredible abdication of responsibility. And you know, the fact that you know people might see on even on social media someone misgendering, and would decide to call the police rather than, if you disagree with that, have a row. Yeah, shows that we sort of have there's there's a we we live in terribly antisocial times. I know it's Christmas. I'm sounding really depressing, <laughs> but I mean we do, which is that we've lost the ability to to rub up against each other, to row with each other, to defend social norms to each other. The prevailing sort of narrative now is that the way in which social change gets enacted and the way in which social norms are enforced is by police officers and, and by politicians and by law rather than what it should be, which is that people police each other and that actually you know, change comes from below is not enforced from the top down. And I think, you know, that feeds into so many big trends that have been looking at Spike throughout the year of, you know, but don't democracy. But that, that, that use of the state, though, well, it's very lopsided, though, isn't it? I mean, it is kind of uh, 
be, you know, hardline conservative Muslims who can weaponize the police force in one way or can count on their cowardice in certain situations. I don't see a lot of turfs, you know, calling up West Yorkshire police and demanding that someone who's called them horrible names on Twitter be. <laughs> well, and I doubt they'd get a very good hearing if they tried it. So it feels like perhaps, it's... but 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 it also depresses me that a lot of the sort of gender critical action mm. takes place in the courts. Yeah. Um, there is this sort of that there is this just total abdication of the idea that you know, in in normal society, in normal places, um, people talking, that that's where things happen. I mean, I remember, Fraser, when we were still in the sort of COVID pandemic times, you talked about, you coined the sort of pub test idea mm. where you said that normally when people sort of figure out how they think about the world, they use the pub test, which is you sort of, you interact with one another and, and common sense comes out. And I think we've just lost the ability. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, the fact that they've had to appoint Esther McVeigh as common sense yeah. officer or whatever in, in <laughs> Parliament shows you that we've just, I think actually we have to look at ourselves and say, what is it that we're not doing that the the, the sort of normal policing of of how we interact with each other has been so taken away from us? I think that's that's something that we should think about quite seriously because the people in charge, by the way, and I'm not now starting to sound conspiratorial, but are not, haven't got, the view of your average Joe and your average Jane, and there's a sort of a, a, a total removal of the political sphere from people's daily lives. But people are terrified to intervene or to have those conversations. That's a very real problem that I, I see is only going to get worse, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we if you take the issue of a boy scuffing the Quran and the police getting involved, I mean, the mother going to these uh, local imams... It's reminiscent of that scene in Godfather 2 when the mother of Vito Corleone goes to the mafia boss to say, please don't hurt my son. And that's effectively what she was doing. It's like a mafia racket supported by the police. And the reason I think we've got to address that is that the problem here is that, like Denmark, Denmark has just banned desecration of religious books. I mean, it's because of the burnings of the Korans in protest, but they've said all religious books, but it's because, and they've said explicitly, we are scared. They've said we've got to protect Danish citizens at home and abroad, and this puts them at risk, right? Uh, Sam Harris has rightly pointed out that the Muslim world seems to be, he describes it as uniquely combustible. We do have a situation where people do get killed for addressing this issue. Samuel Paty was beheaded on the street of Paris. The Batley Grammar School teacher is in hiding and in fear for his life for showing pictures from Charlie Hebdo. So how do we actually deal with this when the, the fear is very real? What we should do is sort of say, I mean, I, as it happens, don't think desecrating a Quran is an effective form mm -hmm. of protest. I think it's needlessly provocative. I think it's unpleasant. I just find it gross. I think it has connotations of the Third Reich and all mm -hmm. of that kind of thing of burning books. I don't like it. Um, but in a free society, you should be able to do it in the way that the Grent, the guys who burnt that effigy of the Grenfell Tower, I found that distasteful, but they should be able to do it without uh, being arrested for it. Um, so how do we actually say, look, what people do with their own copies of books is up to them. Uh, we, we can disapprove. We can express disapproval and protest, whatever you want to do. But we can't get the police involved. How do we do it? It's a serious question. How do we do it when actually people do get death threats? They do get hurt. They do get killed for standing up uh, for free expression. Well, I mean, seriously, what do we do about it? I mean, one example that comes to mind, because I know we talk about the law and whatever, but it seems to me that the law has a role in, for instance, going after people who are issuing death and arson threats to a young, to a mother and her young children. Right. There's no it free speech defence of no, death exactly. <laughs> it, strike, it strikes me that that's a, a pretty clear-cut example in which you would hope that the law would come down on the side of um, people who aren't um, menacing and trying to harm people. But I think that goes to that point that we've been going around in this whole discussion, which is the extent to which 
even the institutions of the state, even if they haven't been captured by these interests, they're terrified of them. Well, they don't do it. When, when and, Hizb ut called for jihad, they didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, well, jihad can mean a walk in the park or a meditation or something. Like they do, they just, in a, in a yeah. spiritual struggle. They've got no interest in, in And not, un, not unlike those Ivy League um, head of universities. It's a similar sort of thing. I don't really want the police deciding what jihad means or any religious mm. concept and what should be. But... What I find so striking is that even when you've got situations of um, true threats, incitement to violence, things like this, things which are not free speech issues by any absolutist yeah. sort of definition of it, they're often nowhere to be seen, right. depending on who the victim and who the perpetrator is. That seems to be the, the mess that we're in. And it's not to say that these things are easy. I completely understand why the Scandinavian countries and the leadership there are so petrified. I mean, they've just, in Denmark, they've just foiled a it looks like a Hamas link terror plot. Swedish citizens were murdered in Brussels earlier this year because yeah. they were Swedish, seemingly because of the Quran burning controversy. It's not to say that this threat isn't real, but at the same time, surely if you're going to be devoting your moral and state resources towards something, it should be protecting those freedoms, not. So you see it as a police upon. issue, the police should get it. Because, I mean, you know, we failed during the Salman Rushdie uh, affair, mm-hmm. you know, but, but again, you know, what we should have done is uh, uh, the book should have been sold at every bookstore and every uh, media outlet mm-hmm. should have been promoting it. That would have been the, pro- rather than having these endless debates about whether he brought it on himself. Mm. Yeah. But on the other hand, bookshops in London were firebombed. And I yeah. can't be the one to say to a, a, book, a bookstore owner, well, you should just take that risk because that's not really fair. And, a, and a translator was killed and Rushdie yeah. himself was stabbed a few years right. ago. Right, so how? But I think, well, I think if, I think it, it's a bit like what you said about the trans thing. It doesn't happen overnight. But I think that what we have to do is, and I think it is sort of beginning to happen, is normalise the idea that free speech is a good thing or renormalize the idea that free speech is a good thing. Um, I think that the trans issue has opened a wedge in the door of discussions about free speech. I mean, I you know, remember for years, you know, we've been called, oh, you're just the freeze peach people. And, oh, it's a storm on a teacup. And, yeah. oh, there's nothing to see here. And you I think can't say that anymore so much. No, they? they're not because, yeah. because daily things happen, you know, and, and too much to even report on things keep happening, which is that censorship and also censorship of, the right kind of people. Mm. So, you know, not not your sort of Nazi pug guy who people feel a bit squeamish about defending, but sort of very liberal feminists and sort mm. of people who are um, previously in the right onset. Yeah, yeah J.K. <laughs> Rowling, the most drippingly liberal person in the world, has now become, you know, a hero of free speech and rightly so. And, you know, I think that people are talking about it more. Yeah. And it's little by little. It's people when they realise that it's not just celebrities who get banned, but also porters at Cambridge. And it's, you know, get, you know, they're kicked out of their jobs for their views. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a sort of thing that happens out there on Twitter, but it's a thing that happens in the real world. Um, the more that we sort of defend freedom of speech as a means to better political change and the baseline for a free society, I think there's something hopeful in that and I do think things are starting to change and you know we've got a general election coming next year all these issues are going to be I think framed in terms of whether politicians are able to stand up for the truth and stand up for an idea of open public debate and I think that's an exciting yeah. prospect. I think if we don't do that, what will happen is that uh, genuinely far-right groups will gain in popularity, you know. I mean, I, I think it's a big step backward for, De- for Denmark to ban uh, Graham yeah. burning. Mm. Uh, then you have Gert Wilders becoming, uh, being elected overwhelmingly, who actually has said he wants to ban the Quran yeah. and close mosques. That That's the way it could go if we don't promote the free speech aspect. And I fear that sort of, I mean, I, I'd like to be utopian, I'd like to be optimistic, but I feel like that is the way it's going. Am I, am I wrong about that? 
Well, that the the issue that we're stumbling into, or seemingly on the free speech, certainly the right to blaspheme question, but on other ones as well, is that the unwillingness of um, what used to what we might used to call the liberal elite, not particularly liberal these days, to take on these thorny issues in a forthright way means that the, you often get in a situation where the only people talking about a particular issue or the only people willing to you know uh, go there with certain issues are because they want to exploit it for nefarious ends. Right. But it just you'd think we'd have learned that lesson. But that's what I don't want. Now. I don't want this to turn to war on Islam by far right mm-hmm. groups yeah. who gain in popularity, or that we think that the only way to address the authoritarianism of Islamofascism is for a new form of Islam uh, authoritarianism that cracks ban, down ban on the hate freedom. marches as yeah. the so as the so right. yeah. by banning protests and that kind of, yeah. that's yeah. where that's where I worry this is going actually. But it's bad for Muslims as well. We talked about this on your show the other week, Andrew. Like, as, as far as I'm aware, the only person who has been murdered in this country as a consequence of Islamic blasphemy alleged was an Ahmadi Muslim in Glasgow mm-hmm. in 2016. Assad Shah, he was stomped to death by yeah. a, um, a man from Bradford because of the fact that the Ahmadis are seen as heretics and blasphemers and so on. So it's the minorities within the minorities, it's the dissenting sects, it's the liberal Muslims as well who are thrown under the bus when you allow this stuff to come in. Because we have treated these extremists as the authentic voice of British Muslims and worked policy around that, invited them to be community leaders, mm. invited them to advise the police mm. on what is and isn't acceptable. <laughs> We've got to unpick that. And I get that it's not easy, I get that it's going to take a lot of bravery, but at the end of the day, the thing about people who are trying to menace your society or terrorise your society is the extent to which you change that marks their success. There's only so much they can do, there's only so much damage they can inflict. Defend people as much as possible. And those people who are willing to go there, are willing to be heretics and blasphemers, they should be stuck up for. Even, you know, certainly their rights stuck up for, definitely. Definitely. So bubbling in a way this year has been a sort of brewing revolt against net zero. There have been some quite massive protests of farmers in the Netherlands, in Ireland. There have been many sort of populist parties that are doing well in the polls that are very openly, explicitly against net zero. And there's even in, you know, sort of mainstream circles with Rishi Sunak, the Conservative government in the UK, and even Emmanuel Macron in France, saying we need to take this a bit on a bit more slowly. There's a bit of pause for thought. Ella, do you think the sort of penny is kind of dropping a little bit on this issue where, you know, it's as if it's they're not quite as uh, don't quite have the wind in their sails as much as they're used to, the elites. I think that the the if there's anything good about the cost of living crisis, it's that I think it's made politicians realise that net zero will make people more skint than they already are and that, that citizens aren't going to take that mm. and aren't going to vote for them if they are fundamentally going to become more broke as a result of a green policy. I think that is the only thing that particularly in the you know in the UK the upcoming general election is the only thing that has just slightly tempered Rishi Sunak's position because he hasn't changed his mind on net zero. He's, he's at just, pains to say that. Yeah, yeah. 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 He, he's, yeah. he's falling over himself to say it, but you know, he's slowed on net zero, says we have to be more considered. I'll take any movement at this mm. point because previously it has been sort of like um, a fascistic uh, you know, adherence to a green ideology across political parties. But I think it, it literally is just a practical realization that if you put in place plans to you know reduce car usage or reduce what you know how people can heat their homes and all the rest of it and up um energy prices through green levies that people will not have as much money and then they will be angry and then they won't vote for you i think it's a i think it's a cynical move um among politicians 
And I think we have to get better at, uh, or, you know, I think people have to become more vocal at saying this isn't just a a sort of money issue. Yeah. It's actually a, it's an issue of democracy, which is that, you know, it's disgusting that you have sort of salivating media attention and coverage of COP28, which is the most drippingly elitist kind of gangbang of awful world leaders. And, you know, people sort of, previously disgraced politicians getting up on their high horse and lecturing people about um, green targets and, you know, royalty trying to snub prime ministers with ties and all the rest of it. Sultans trying to sell oil. Exactly, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The sort of, like, you couldn't write a better parody of sort of the state of world politics Mm -hmm. um, in COP28 and everybody sort of bows down to it. And the fact that there are, that there is, you know, none of the sort of day-to-day policy making that will deeply affect people's quality of life yeah. is not made by politicians feeling the pressure of their own populaces. It's made on this sort of world stage where people want to look good in press conferences. And I think we've got to get better at sort of outlining the fact that this is not just a, a financial matter, it's a dem- democratic matter. It's also a sort of, it's also quite serious about thinking about the future mm. because so much of sort of net zero and green policy making is about stripping everything back and putting nothing in its place. No plans for nuclear, no plans for any kind of innovative sort of new, they talk about new green technology and what they really mean is a few new wind farms, which isn't new and isn't exciting. So I think there's there's actually a, a dangerous lack of um, foresight in all of this, which could mean that you end up in however, whenever tw- uh, net zero is meant to come in, and there being n- you know no gas in the tank. And yeah. I think hopefully that that sort of realization will start to make itself apparent within among politicians. I mean, Andrew, do you think it feels like this issue just really underlines the distance between the elites and the people because it's almost like politics one hundred and one or democracy one hundred and one. The public wants to be feel better off in five years' time than they do now. And yet, for some reason, politicians seem to think if they just say the magic words net zero, people will forget about that. Yeah, it's one of those examples of the the elites think they know best and that, you know, they they want to rule and uh, in in this kind of uh, technocratic way. I mean, it is interesting that there have been some, there's been some movement. I mean, Andy Burnham did cancel those plans for a ULES-style system in Mm. Manchester off the back of public outcry. So he's actually sort of responding as opposed to Sadiq Khan's idea, which is just to keep doubling down. Even though, didn't it cost uh, them a by-election in Uxbridge? The, yeah, the, yeah. The, the imposition of the ULS thing. So people, the, the, there's movement within politicians. They, they're going to have to listen because they want to get elected. And people, as Ella says, people are not going to be happy when they've got less less money. And, that is the, uh, and they're going to have to think in terms of longer term as well. I mean, France implemented nuclear technology decades ago and are reaping the benefits now. Mm. No current government wants to do that. I suppose it's expensive. I suppose it's unpopular. They don't get any short-term uh, benefit from doing so, but we're going to have to think in, long, in, in long-term terms. I think they've lost the argument about net zero. I think everyone knows it's going to make everyone poorer. It's certainly going to make the poorer poorer. And that's not mm. going to be a good, that's not, that's not going to win anyone any votes at any yeah. time soon. I think it was, I, I can't remember what it was this year that it resurfaced this, uh, you know, video of Nick Clegg uh, from the 2010s yeah. saying, well, if we start building a nuclear power plant, it won't be online for another 10 years. So right. who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, well, we're still That's alive. ages I, away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think people are still going to want electricity in 10 years time. 
That's just my yeah. prediction. <laughs> We've evolved past that for some reason. But there's definitely the political battle. It feels like it's probably in the UK feels a little bit more meagre. But if you, think, if you look at what's been going on in the Netherlands over the course of the past year, mm. obviously you had the farm citizen movement clean up in their sort of provincial elections, I think I'm right in saying. Didn't really do very much in terms of the recent elections there. But even um, the defeat of Timmermans, who was um, kind of vying for... Um, for the prime ministership, who was very much the kind of EU sort of architect of kind of, or at least the, the poster boy of EU climate. Yeah, he's Franz Timmermans was the vice president of the EU and the leader of the Green mm. Deal, which is their version of net zero. So the kind of there, there's clearly an agitation with it because I think what people are realizing is the fact that this net zero agenda it's it's sort of class war by other means. It's mm. the it's something which can flatter the egos of. Um, bourgeois activists and will barely dent the pockets of people who can afford to pay more for their energy and for their lifestyles almost as a you know as a, as a kind of status symbol but for the people who are struggling to get by for the people who just need a cheap reliable car to get the kids to school for the people who actually are really feeling the pinch at the moment that's just not going to fly anymore and I think what it's only starting I think we're only really at the beginnings of this yeah. as it being a new distinct front particularly in the populist politics of recent times and um, I'd just be interested to see who can find a way of prosecuting that argument and pushing it forward because it's long overdue I think you've got to thank Just Stop Oil for a lot of that oh, like, <laughs> in so far as if they weren't the best just, thing that ever happened yeah, fossil I, fuel I, I think the bloke so, yeah. in a wig of environmental protest that's it Every time they glue themselves to a work of art or throw tomato yeah. soup on it or interrupt a West End musical or <laughs> and then they start, they always do that thing of then they lecture the public and they always sound like something out of a P.G. Woodhouse novel. <laughs> and, you know, when they are that posh, that plummy, the class of the thing that you're describing is so public exposed the fact that they you know they, they're ruining people's fun they what was I, I mistakenly said it was just a boil but it wasn't there was a a group who spray painted a christmas tree oh with, it was the with, german with, wing of extinction yes yeah, let's the right. generation last generation is that who yeah. right i mistakenly said just a boil on my show but it was yeah but it, they're, they're, they're the same they're, they're basically the same, the same. Yeah, probably funded um, yeah. by the same people exactly yeah. but, but that um, kind of thing it just annoys everyone and mm -hmm. You know, if they if they didn't have names like you know Hugo Ponsford or oh no, he was one of the Colston Four, wasn't he? But, yeah, but you get the, the gist. Name. Indigo Rumbelow, yeah. Indigo Rumbelow, Amy exactly. Rugg, Easy, Edward Whittingham, if they didn't, even Lazarus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been collecting these over a period you know, of time, but, but. but it just we it's just so clearly exposed. Everyone can see these are posh people against the plebs. Mm. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, particularly when you know you don't want to play the sort of oh you went on a private sort of jet argument but it is it is kind of you know it's disgusting so now. when people like you know emma thompson comes and sort of tries to lecture people and then the next day is sort of seen somewhere in la with you know having gone and, and done all these sort of trips and the fact that you know you have politicians making the case for and actually uh sort of very low level um, politicians and councillors in Hackney mm. um, making the case for going around the world to discuss climate politics you know, on planes, but yeah. then saying to plebs, no, 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 you absolutely cannot drive down this street because it's killing children. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that kind of double standards, I think, is making people sick. But it's, I think also it's a sort of, you know, when we remember when Extinction Rebellion were climbing up on the DLR and there was the kind of Canning Town yeah. Massive when people were um, pulling them off the trains, that was a few years ago. I think there has been now a little bit of a, that there is even, there's there's no sympathy left within the, the public for Just a Poil or those kind of organisations. It's, you know, interesting that Extinction Rebellion have really sort of taken a, taken a pause and a backseat because they see how ridiculous it is. But I think it's also the case that there is, 
you know, the whole discussion about green politics has has lost its nuance, which is that there's, I think people now don't necessarily see it as a sort of it's good to be green because being green has now become no no transport, no going away on holidays, no eating meat. It's become so extreme mm. that in actual fact, I think it's it's sort of clarified for people what a green future that the Labour Party or anyone else might keep talking about would actually mean, which is a future of austerity. Yeah, This isn't about... Um, cleaning up sort of London air by getting putting on a few more buses, which I think few people have had a problem about. This is about reducing people's quality of life in order to meet targets. Um, and that is nothing except a sort of a war on the poor. Thank you so much for watching the Spikes podcast. We'll be back next Friday. If you hit subscribe and click the bell, you'll never miss an episode. And in the meantime, why not check out all of Spike's other videos and podcasts on this channel? And for more Spiked content, find us at spiked-online.com.